Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we're welcoming back to the show our friend Rebecca Lynch. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks for coming on today. Do you want (laughs) to give yourself a brief introduction for our listeners who may not have caught the last time you were on? My name's Rebecca. I'm from the same uh, area of Eastern Queens as Elizabeth back in New York. But after the 2016 presidential election, I moved to Wisconsin. Uh, and I'm now the uh, political director for the Wisconsin Working Families Party. So I've been out here for about a year and a half now, uh, and things are getting really underway with the 2018 midterm elections. Uh, but I miss Queen, so it's really nice to hear Elizabeth's voice and see her face right now while we're on Skype. Yeah, the last time we spoke, we recorded it in January of 2016. That was a very long time ago. So uh, for starters, can you tell us what the Working Families Party is? I consider it a faction of the Democratic Party, sometimes a little bit outside it, but uh, independent political organization on the left in this country. And we have state chapters um, across the nation, everywhere from West Virginia to New York to Wisconsin. Um, We also have local branches all over throughout the South, throughout the Southwest. I think we're starting a local branch right now in Wisconsin. So Lots of really exciting organizing happening under the Working Families Party banner. But we um, were originally formed in New York as a coalition of labor and community groups and grassroots activists. And I think it's really grown um, exponentially since then, but, you know, really uh, still very much kind of oriented towards in that spirit of unions, community groups, poor people's movements, immigrant rights groups, uh, folks who are on the left, grassroots activists. You know, coming together under the banner of the Working Families Party to make blue districts bluer and flip blue districts to red and just generally push, you know, multiracial populism uh, in our politics. That sounds great. I wasn't sure how many states that they were involved in outside of New York. We're getting more and more all the time. So (laughs) I feel like I'm going to get it wrong. I want to say like 15 or something like that. Some of the newer ones are West Virginia, where we're very involved with the wildcat strikes around the, the teachers union, uh, the union teachers, um, to Colorado, where there's a lot of really exciting political stuff happening. But don't quote me on that. I'm not 100 percent. I feel like every time I turn around, there's a new state chapter. That's exciting news. What project are you working on in Wisconsin? So we've got a lot going on in Wisconsin right now because it is the midterms and we are um, such a pivotal state in that sense. So we've got uh, Tammy Baldwin who's our U.S. senator. She is up for re-election. So far, uh, right-wing forces have spent more money targeting Tammy Baldwin than any other senator. They see her as particularly vulnerable. She's a fantastic senator. I think, you know, she's running a very strong, really smart campaign, but there's certainly a lot of money against her. Then we have the infamous Governor Scott Walker, who, you know, came into office, attacked the unions. That was, you know, the impetus for the, like, incredible labor organizing and taking over the Capitol here after what was a law called Act 10 was passed, attacking unions. And there's a real like resurgence of labor union activism in Wisconsin around that. But, you know, Scott Walker is no friend, not only to labor, but to public education, to people of color, to voting rights and democracy. Uh, He really has been carrying the banner of the Koch brothers and the right wing since he was in office. And this is the first time that he's up for election and it's a good year for Democrats. So he's been up before in, in years where it's been the Tea Party swept into office and, you know, the tides were on his side. 
but now for the first time it's you know a, a bluish year and he's up so we've got a really dynamic race to take on Scott Walker. I personally, along with my colleague Marina Dmitrievich, recruited uh, someone to run against Paul Ryan, someone by the name of Randy Bryce, who's running for Congress. Uh, and Paul Ryan has since decided he's not going to run for re-election. They found essentially a Paul Ryan clone and, and former Ryan staffer to run. So we've got in Wisconsin um, state legislative lines that are so partisan gerrymandered that they went before the Supreme Court uh, this last cycle, and it was our great disappointment that at the very end, on their way out the door, the Supreme Court decided to punt on that case, not make a ruling, and so we're stuck with these very, very biased, truly outrageous lines. Um, but in spite of that, we have some really fantastic candidates, in particular a lot of women who have been inspired by what's been happening over the last two years and taking matters into their own hands and running really incredible races to try to flip some of these districts, two races that I'm very, very excited about that I hadn't mentioned yet. One is the Milwaukee County Sheriff's race. Our former Milwaukee County Sheriff was Sheriff David Clark. Some mm. might remember him from the last Republican National Convention. He was a um, man of color in a cowboy hat, huge Trump supporter. He also, I think, is like a human rights violator. Um, and he was our uh, sheriff for a long time. And a number of really terrible abuses happened in the county jails and by deputies on his watch. And then uh, we have a dynamic race to replace him, and that's a primary coming up soon. I'm really excited about. And then the last one is lieutenant governor, which isn't a seat that a lot of people generally think about. But we've got a primary, two Democrats running for lieutenant governor. One of them just moved here from California a few months ago and has poured a bunch of his own personal fortune into the race. It's very strange. And the other is a good friend of mine, um, a young, incredibly progressive man of color named Mandela Barnes, who started out. His career as a faith organizer, was a young elected official in the legislature, worked with the State Innovation Exchange, which is kind of what I think of as the ALEC of the left, and comes from a union household. His mom is a union teacher. His father was a United Auto Worker. UAW is a huge union here in Wisconsin and really is very progressive. And he's running on a platform I wish, quite frankly, our gubernatorial candidates would be running on. But he's very young. You know, He's as young as I think we are. I see Mandela as someone who we need to elect as lieutenant governor, not only because he's running on all the issues we care about and we need someone to elevate it, and not only because he's from the north side of Milwaukee, from 53206, which is the most incarcerated zip code in the country, and yet he can speak to and relate to people throughout the state and really brings people together in a way that's so rare in this modern, like, divisive age, but really because I think we need to invest in a pipeline and invest in young candidates, particularly young progressive candidates of color, for Mandela, if he becomes lieutenant governor and we beat Scott Walker, the sky is the limit for him. And that's something that Republicans do so well on the right. They invest in building up, you know, young Paul Ryans, and we need to do the same thing. So it's a very busy but very exciting time to be in Wisconsin. It is very exciting. And it's also very inspiring to hear about all the good things that are going on. And I'm sure if we talk to organizers around the country, they'd have other interesting stories. But uh have a million questions based on all the things that you just said. Mm -hmm. But I think the first one I'm going to go to is gerrymandering because that's the thing I want to ask you about because I was going to ask you in terms of congressional districts being gerrymandered, but I guess people should also pay attention to the fact that their state assembly and or state senate districts could also be gerrymandered. You know, we should not underestimate the lengths to which people in power and by and large, these are Republicans, but it can often be Democrats in power as well, particularly when we talk about New York and the old boys club and like folks who really control, you know, who gets to run and who wins. But we should not underestimate the lengths to which people in power will go to rig the rules of the game 
to try to keep their power. And, you know, that comes in so many different ways, right? So we see it with Citizen United and dark money and lack of campaign finance. We see it with, you know, undermining people's ability to vote, whether it's voter suppression, voter ID laws, changing early voting hours to make it less or making it harder for people to show up to the polls in one way or another. Um, but we also see it with gerrymandering. You know, people in power will try to change the line so that they can keep their seats, that their party can keep their majorities. So in Wisconsin, the majority of folks voted for Democrats, and yet a vast minority of them are represented by Democrats in the assembly. And that's really just like creative map uh, drawing. And I think, you know, one of the things that we need to think about as we approach the next census and whatever the outcome of the data of that census will be is how folks will be drawing these lines. And as technology gets better and better, it's going to be easier and easier for them to draw really outrageous lines. And so Eric Holder, former attorney general under the Obama administration, has created a new organization to kind of like combat gerrymandering. They've been getting involved in a bunch of races throughout the country. They were involved in the state Supreme Court race here. It's a huge problem. And, you know, our relatively right wing Supreme Court refusing to weigh in on that problem just like further entrenches, you know, the power of the people who are trying to kind of like break the rules of the game in that way. Yeah, it's, it's something that I found incredibly discouraging in terms of my outlook. I mean, I want to be optimistic. I want people to have hope and I want people to, to take action. But for me, I see it as one of the biggest obstacles to the Democratic Party taking back the House of Representatives at any point in the in the future. I mean, there are a lot of obstacles. All of the challenges to democracy that I just mentioned. And that's why, you know, when folks talk about, is this a wave year? Are we going to have a blue wave? Is it a democratic wave year? You know, I do think that our base is coming out more than their base and people are paying attention. And I think folks want to check on the White House. And I think that will be a motivation for electing more Democrats to Congress. But the key difference between, you know, 2018 for Democrats and say 2010 for Republicans is that the rules have been so rigged. And, you know, partisan gerrymandering is definitely a huge issue for us. I completely agree, Elizabeth. I'm also really concerned about money and politics. So much has changed in the last 10 years around money and politics. And that is something that, like, we are really going to have to contend with if we're going to try to take back the House. One thing I've always tried to encourage people to do is to uh, volunteer to get involved in the campaign. And this year is a great year to do it, as, as great as any. Even if it's, you know, for Congress or for a state assembly or a state legislature candidate, you know, go to their website, make a call, sign up. What can a volunteer expect to do on the campaign? What's it like? The best way of getting folks to understand what's at stake in an election and getting their support for a candidate and making sure they vote is face-to-face -face communication. And so knocking on doors is like a thousand percent the best way to do voter contact. No, not everybody can knock on doors. Maybe you're differently able, right? Maybe you live across the country, but you still want to help. But if you can knock on doors, that's always the best way. You can make it work for you and you should be honest with the campaign about what you need. But that is like a thousand percent the best way. Calling and phone banking has gotten a lot better and back when we kind of started with like burner phones and paper lists, you know, now more and more campaigns are using predictive dialers that dial for you. And I had a race out here in the spring. We got a union educator elected to a county supervisor seat over a super PAC backed candidate. And the way he won was, you know, voter contact. And we did a lot of phone banks using a predictive dialer for him. And I actually typically hate phone banking, but Given the content of our conversations, the substance, it was basically about the super PAC and 
articles that have come out about it, we ended up having a lot of many substantive, meaningful conversations with folks. And so that's something that I actually ended up enjoying. I think, you know, other folks can enjoy too. Anything else you can do. I mean, voter contact is the most important thing. But if you want to write a letter to the editor, go for it. It's not a substitute for voter contact, but, you know, certainly go for it. Donating, getting other folks to donate making sure your friends and neighbors know who to vote for. These are all really important things. We're going to put this episode out. It's going to be close to the elections, but not so close that people can't volunteer because a lot of times the last weekend before the election is very important. You know, get out the vote weekend. If you only have one weekend, is the weekend before the election the one to do it? Yeah, for sure. Making sure that you're reminding folks, hey, election day is here is really important. And that's always the most fun, too, because, you know, it's almost over. And <laughs> I know it's hard for you to see that now because we're, uh, we're recording this uh, towards the end of July. There's still a big chunk of the summer and, and fall ahead of you. But it's exciting to think about. So I kind of wanted to ask just for our listeners, what are some of the ways that people can really see the candidates that are running for things like lieutenant governor or races that are not as nationally covered if they want to know who's their candidate? In Wisconsin or just generally? Specifically Wisconsin for you, but then also generally. It can be tough. You know, in some places you'll have the League of Women Voters might put out a nonpartisan voter guide. Or like in New York City, for example, on the New York City, I think Campaign Finance Board puts out something. But if you're a member of a union, you know, you certainly should take a look at, you know, who your union is supporting and get involved that way. Um, And a lot of young people are, but they're not as involved. So, like, that's a thing that, you know, we really need to, as a generation, get a little bit tighter on. There are lots of other organizations that you can look to to get information and kind of like signal at least who's in your wing. So, For example, I mentioned there are working families parties across the country. I think it's always a good idea to check out who WFP is supporting. We were a thousand percent behind Stacey Abrams. We, you know, were like from the beginning behind Ben Jealous in Maryland. Um, And these are like really exciting candidates. And so if if those are candidates that you are interested in supporting, I would look at that. I'm also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. So, you know, you could look at DSAs. It's pretty uneven across the country. There are some DSA chapters that get involved in electoral politics that are some like here in Milwaukee, DSA has yet to do that. There's a real debate within DSA about the value of elections. But, you know, if if you're in a place where they're involved, I I would definitely take a look at who they're supporting. There is press about some of these candidates, but maybe not necessarily a clearinghouse. So like, for example, Mandela Barnes, who I mentioned, who's running for lieutenant governor in Wisconsin, was profiled in the nation among 10 progressive candidates to watch in the midterms. So, you know, looking at publications like The Nation is a good idea. You know, I think not just because we're on a podcast right now, but podcasts are this like really substantive and like small d democratized way of getting information out. So I know like in Wisconsin, every week I'm on a podcast called Battleground Wisconsin with the head of Citizen Action, another person very involved in Citizen Action. We have elected officials and other groups on it as guests every week. And we talk about the real issues and things that you don't really get in-depth coverage of necessarily on NPR or in statewide newspapers. You know, so we'll talk about, for example, the $4 billion taxpayer giveaway to the Taiwanese company Foxconn that Scott Walker is doing in Paul Ryan's district right now. We'll talk about, you know, what's happening with partisan gerrymandering in the state and what the Supreme Court is doing and why that's important. Uh, But we'll also talk about some of the progressive candidates. I think that's probably not unique to Wisconsin. It might take a little bit of elbow grease to find, you know, the version of that podcast for your state. But I do think that's worthwhile. You know, for folks who are maybe in New York and listening, 
I rely pretty heavily on Brian Leher of WNYC. And, you know, you can get him um, for the podcast store. You can get him on the NPR One app. But finding those credible and progressive news sources is a good start. And then, like I said before, looking to specific progressive organizations to at least signal who you should take a look at, if not definitely support, is um, another good way of going about it. And also for Wisconsin voters, um, this was a big issue, I know, in the presidential election, that people were not sure if they were actively registered to vote, that people uh, went to the polls and realized that they were no longer registered when they believed that they had been. Are there ways to check your registration and make sure that it's current and up to date for November? There definitely are. I don't I don't happen to know off the top of my head all the ways, but I do know that if you go to the ACLU or you go to a group called Wisconsin Voices, they'll have a lot of material about this on their websites. In Wisconsin, we have early voting. We have, you know, pretty easy way to do absentee voting. Our primaries are coming up uh, August 14th. And they're pretty important and people should vote in that. That's also a good way to kind of like make sure you're on the rolls. Uh, maybe, you know, going to early vote in the primary and, and seeing if you have any issues. But yeah, it's pretty outrageous. Um, a lot of people were removed from the rolls. Karen, something I was going to say about New York is that um, in New York State, you can go to the Board of Elections website mm-hmm. and you can see what the ballot is going to look like. I usually do that um, a couple of days before because in New York State, it's often hard to find information if there's a referendum question, mm-hmm. what it is. So after once or twice being surprised in the voting booth, saying, what even is this question? I've started to check the, the Board of Elections website to just see what's going to be on the ballot. And that way you can see all the candidates, all the parties, all the questions and so on. And I would think other state Board of Elections would have similar resources, but not necessarily. But that's definitely uh, something that everyone can check out. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, Rebecca, can you tell people who Ben Jealous is if they don't know and about that race? So, yeah, so Ben Jealous is running for uh, governor of Maryland. He is a Democrat. He just won the Democratic nomination, which is very exciting. It was a super competitive primary. And he is the former president and CEO of the NAACP, someone who is very progressive, tied into the Bernie side of the Democratic Party. And our Maryland state chapter was very involved in, you know, boosting uh, Ben Jealous to victory. And so we're pretty excited about that. Do you want to talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Yeah, I would love to. Totally. It was such an exciting election. And I didn't even notice what was going on until about, I was going to say two weeks before. It's not, I live in Queens, but it's not my district. It's the next district over. I had seen something online and I was like, this is interesting. And then I I read the article about her that said that she had had 8,000 individual donors. And I said, she's in striking distance of Joe Crowley. That's amazing. I think I texted Rebecca and a couple of the people. I was like, who is this person? What's going on? And then she won and it was amazing. And I guess a question I had, and I know that you're in Wisconsin, you were out of the way for this, but I know you're a part of, of both organizations, the Democratic Socialist of America and the Working Families Party, because when I was looking at her, I was saying, oh, what unions endorsed her? And and I know it's a, it's a political decision that the unions want to go with the person that they think is going to win or with the person who's the incumbent. But how did those decisions get made? I haven't worked for a union in a long time now. You know, every union makes their decisions differently. So I can only speculate. But I think Congressman Joe Crowley was a solid Democrat in a lot of ways. And I think the argument that 
was made so eloquently by AOC and her supporters was that, that it's not enough to have a district that's blue. We need to make blue districts bluer and we need to be like fully progressive um, and embrace, you know, Bernie's policies and socialist policies. And that means like that healthcare is a right. That means getting money out of politics, a whole host of things that I think folks on the left really believe in. And I think a lot of Americans on poll believe in. That said, you know, Congressman Kelly was in the House for a long time, was a solid Democrat and, you know, consistently would support pro-union policies and have good votes on other issues that are important to Democrats. And so I think that's how he ended up garnering the support he did. I think generally we kind of see that up and down the ballot, um, no matter where you are in the country, that like that's the inherent advantage of incumbency, you know, that you get to say like, oh, look at these votes I've had and you've created these relationships. And a lot of times those relationships translate into money. Um, But I think what was so powerful about the victory in the New York, it was the 14th, right, the New York 14th, was that all those relationships for Congressman Crowley did translate into a lot of money. He raised a lot of money. But it didn't translate into the support of the people and the people who are voting. And I think that that is like a lesson that a lot of people took away from that, that like you've got to continue to build relationships with your district and represent the district. And that means a lot of different things. Being representative of your district means having policies that are for the benefit of and inspire the people you represent. It also means being someone who people feel is representative of them. And I think having a um, young woman working class Latina from the Bronx run in that seat. I think a lot of people saw themselves represented in that in a way that perhaps maybe um, Congressman Crowley, um, they didn't feel quite the same way. And there was another politician that was running in New York, Saraj Patel, who was running, uh, who did surprisingly well, obviously. He didn't win his race against... uh, Carolyn Maloney. uh, For some reason, it will not come out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Carolyn Maloney. <laughs> there does seem to be some push to kind of the further left side of the party where we want politicians who want to make strong stances on left politics and not to kind of appeal to the centrist base, but to appeal to the further left base and, and kind of be a strong supporter of left causes. Do you feel like there's a kind of similar experience happening in Wisconsin now? We're a purple state. We're not blue. We're a purple state. We went for Trump in the last election. We have a Republican governor who's a real enemy of unions and and communities of color and poor people. We have uh, Tammy Baldwin, who's a huge champion for campaign finance, for Buy America proposals, who's like a really great Democrat in in the Senate. And then we have Ron Johnson, who's just a bizarre millionaire, billionaire, Republican senator. So we're a state that like is like kind of like on both sides of the map, but we don't have exactly the same dynamics of like, you know, New York City trying to go a bit bluer. That said, I do kind of see a variation of that trend here. And I, in particular, I see it right now in our lieutenant governor and gubernatorial election, as well as in the um, race for the first congressional district with Randy Bryce. That is to say, like voters and donors are gravitating towards candidates who stand for something and candidates in turn are standing for things. And so, for example, we have, you know, Randy Bryce, who I recruited to run for Congress against Paul Ryan is a union iron worker. He goes hunting. He's a gun owner. He's a veteran, working class guy. 
he also thinks we should abolish ICE. He also says that Black Lives Matter. Uh, he also has strong positions about not giving you know, huge tax cuts and corporate giveaways to corporations and instead helping the working class. You know, so he is running on these like very, very bold progressive platforms. And again, I see it in the gubernatorial races as well. I see, you know, candidates really um, all of them saying we need health care for all, all of them saying we need to support public schools. Uh, all of them having real serious concerns about that Foxconn project, which I mentioned earlier. While I don't necessarily see um, the same dynamic of like super progressive, younger, um, almost socialist candidates beating out um, older, maybe slightly out of touch Democrat uh, incumbents, you know, I do see the candidates who we have here who are trying to flip red seats to blue being very bold in their policy positions. Is there anyone else, uh, especially women, but anyone to nationally or in Wisconsin that we should be watching out for? August 14th is our gubernatorial primary here. And it's a crowded field with a lot of great candidates. I personally, as someone who's like living and breathing this race, still have no idea who I'm going to vote for. But there is someone who's really interesting running. Her name is Kelda Royce. She is, uh, I think, the youngest candidate in the race former head of NARAL, former state legislator, small business owner, has started, has a, a real estate tech company, a young mother. And she had her announcement video that was back in, I think, January, um, whenever International Women's Day was, is when she launched that video, featured her talking about her record, talking about the issues. And also she happened to be like at various points in the video, breastfeeding her youngest child. And so she's like very much running um, as a feminist. And her first TV ad has just come out this week. And it is her talking about, like, I can't believe that we're having to fight the same fights again around choice. Um, and we've got to really fight back against that. So she's really running on that. So I would take a look at her for sure. There are a number of women, uh, many of whom we've endorsed at the Working Families Party. And, and that's on our website. And, you know, other groups have endorsed Citizen Action, other unions. But there are a number of women running for state Senate and state assembly here trying to flip um, Red Seats Blue. And they're pretty, some of them are some pretty amazing people. So I I would definitely check that out. Cool. Anybody nationally that you're aware of that we should look out for? Stacey Abrams, who could be the first Black woman governor in the history of this country, uh, is the Democratic nominee in Georgia. And, you know, take a look at her, tell your friends in Georgia, make sure they vote. I think it's going to be a tough race, um, but that's very, very exciting. There are a lot of candidates. I'm like so hesitant to to specifically name some. But I, I will say, you know, going back to New York, and this is something that you guys could probably talk about better than I since I've been away for a bit. But there are some exciting women running in New York and in particular against IBC candidates. Oh, yeah. Jessica Ramos, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess running against Jose Peralta for state Senate in Queens. Jackson Heights, Corona area. Any thoughts on Cynthia Nixon? Oh, how can I forget Cynthia Nixon? Oh my goodness. Look at me. Such a bad working families party person. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about Cynthia. I mean, I think Governor Cuomo, you know, his top aide, who, you know, his late father said was like a third son, you know, Joe Prococo has been convicted on like very serious corruption charges, using government resources for political purposes and a whole host of things. And so, you know, I think that in and of itself is very disturbing, right? That like right under Governor Cuomo's nose on his watch, unclear whether or not at his direction, there was some major corruption. Beyond that, you know, you have corruption as an issue generally. The Moreland Commission 
you know, disbanded by Governor Cuomo, was successfully going after corruption in Albany in the state legislature, something that like desperately needs to be restarted and continued. And Cynthia Nixon has said that she would restart the Moreland Commission on day one on its most basic level. If you care about corruption in government, I don't know how you don't take a serious look at Cynthia Nixon over Governor Cuomo. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think he's had he has some really ruthless tactics. And while he's had some good policies over the years, and he's certainly going to go to pains to remind folks of that, it was always for political purposes. Or like now he's finally come out for recreational marijuana. There is no way that he would have done that without Cynthia Nixon running. So Cynthia has already won. We have already won in the, just by her running because it's forcing him to have like policy initiatives that are truly in the interest of the people that otherwise he may not have. Right. And his instinct in the past has been to run to the middle. So I think like that is really exciting, you know, but here's my take on Governor Cuomo, very political person and people get caught in the crossfire. And it's so sad. You know, I, I look at what's happening in New York with public housing, the New York City Housing Authority, and it has been so chronically underfunded by the state, just starved of funds by the state. And Cuomo has the nerve, the audacity to point a finger at the city when he has been starving public housing to the detriment of the lives of millions of people, of children throughout. The, it's just like outrageous. And you can carry that over to so many state responsibilities, right? Look at public education. The state was sued for how inadequately they have funded public education without equity, right? Sued. The folks who sued the state won, and the state has been mandated to change its funding formula and adequately fund schools for poor kids, kids of color, just like have basic freaking equity. And they still don't do it. They still haven't done it. I mean, it's just so outrageous. Or look at the MTA and the audacity of the governor to say anything about the city with the MTA when it's the state that runs the MTA and quite frankly, like runs it so poorly is really like audacious. So I think all of those things give me real cause for concern how well he is running the state. And I think, you know, just generally, I would love to see a woman governor. And I think there are a lot of folks who have a lot of self-interest in making sure that we believe that Cynthia can't win. And I'm not saying it's not tough, but Cynthia can win. I mean, folks didn't think that Zephyr can win. Zephyr had no support. Zephyr didn't have the Working Families Party. Zephyr didn't have any unions. Zephyr was like a shoestring grassroots campaign, and Zephyr did extraordinarily well. So imagine how well Cynthia can do, already having name recognition, running a real campaign with like a, like really talented staff with like a, a large amount of support. There's a lot that could happen. What we really just need is to believe that she can win. Do you think she can win upstate? Yeah, I think she can win upstate. If, if you look at how Zephyr did um, in her race, there are a lot of people who voted for Zephyr upstate. I mean, Cuomo is like not very popular upstate. The greatest strength that Cuomo has are solid Democrats who aren't paying attention. That's a lot of people. And that's like upstate, but it's, it's really downstate in the city too. And if generally he checks a lot of boxes and like we said before like he's been forced to check those boxes sometimes they're after the fact whatever it is so i guess my last question rebecca is two and a half years ago we were the three of us were sitting here and we were very excited for uh hillary clinton i voted in for uh, bernie sanders in the primary but i was still very excited about hillary clinton and now we're all talking about socialism and stuff i clearly see the straight line between being a strong Clinton supporter and also and now in 2018 
being a supporter of DSA candidates or something like that. Do you think that's a contradiction? I don't see it as a contradiction. I think that Senator Clinton had some policies that were certainly neoliberal. She is by no means a DSA candidate. And so I think like in there, I, I see, you know, some real differences. But I think that what folks are looking for are people who are going to fight for us and understand what we're going through and have a plan for it and are going to be leaders in, you know, making this country a better, more equitable place. And I think that there are a lot of people who felt that way about Secretary Clinton and for lots of reasons. And this is not the only reason, but it's not a small thing either. You know, she was running to be our first woman president at a time when, you know, being a woman is still not the most fun. (laughs) And so in some ways, I see that as like a continuation. Like you are looking for DSA candidates who are going to fight for policies that you believe in that are going to make your life and the life of your child and the lives of the people in your community better and make this country a more fair and equitable place. And I think that there are a lot of people who felt like having a woman president is a huge step in that direction. I also think that, you know, she, you know, had some pretty good policy proposals and, you know, was a strong supporter of a, a lot of the things that we care about on the left. You know, I I do think that there's been an evolution in the public mind of what is possible and what is reasonable and what is achievable when it comes to policies. And I think that she really came from a standpoint of this is what we can get done and this is practical and let's talk about what's practical. And I think that was a real misreading of the moment and the electorate. And also, I think, you know, we are the most limited by our own imaginations. And I think that she was very limited by her imagination. I think, you know, in some ways, the Republicans and the right are less limited. They go balls to the wall. Let's get everything we can. And I think that that is something that more and more folks on the left want to do as well, especially our generation, especially the younger generation. We're no longer going to allow people to tell us, oh, that's too pie in the sky or sit down or wait. This is going to take time. You have to be patient. That's not practical. Like, no, like we were raised with a certain understanding about what this country is and what it stands for. And we're not settling for anything less than that. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing. You know, we talked about, you know, the two very competitive congressional races in New York where we had strong, progressive, young candidates who are running. And I see it as, much of an ideological debate as it is a generational debate. We're no longer going to wait. The other side is not waiting. That is not a good strategy. And we don't think we have to. So go back to answer your question. You know, I I don't see it necessarily as a contradiction. I see it as two things. I see one, you know, affirmation that, you know, people saw for different reasons in Hillary, what they see in a DSA platform generally. You know, this idea of like, this is reflective of like me. This is someone who's going to fight for me. This is someone who's going to make this country more true to in reality to what it says on paper. And then I also see it as kind of a sign of the evolution of many of us in terms of our politics and in terms of our idea about what we think is possible. I think I did have one more one more question, but it's about pushing Democrats to the left, which is, I think, something that you're you're working on. And it's something that I'm in the third congressional district in New York. My rep is Tom Sawazi. And he <laughs> he posted something on Facebook that I thought was absolutely ridiculous. He wrote, there's too much hate. 
And this is during the outrage over child imprisonment, child separation of people seeking asylum. And he wrote, I want to applaud all the positive comments by people on this page who want to see common sense solutions. But there is really too much hate. My friends on the left want more outrage, more disgust. I can't believe the comments on this page from some that question my commitment to immigrants which I have demonstrated so clearly for over 25 years since I was first mayor of my hometown. It's so inappropriate and unhelpful. Our friends on the right counter with their own hateful generalizations and attacks, not only on me, but on Democrats generally and all immigrants. And then he goes on and then he says, how about we focus on the 90% we can agree on and work together to solve problems. And I just want to, you know, say no, no, 57% of Republicans supported child imprisonment. They can't agree with us. And I don't understand because he's not an unintelligent or an in person. I don't understand how anyone could say something like that. I don't know how you could look at the political situation in this country and not see the clear moral differences that are going on right now. I think it's really easy for white men to say that there's too much division and there's too much hate. Uh, and can't we all just get along? Because if we all just quote unquote get along, it benefits them. There's this like fantastic book I'm reading right now called White Rage by Carol Anderson, who's a real incredible scholar. She starts out in her introduction talking about, you know, how she came about, you know, the idea of white rage and really kind of going back to Diallo, but um, it articulated itself in her mind during, you know, the what some would call the riots in Ferguson. And that there was more of a focus in the media and generally nationally on the reaction to white police violence than to the violence itself. The current setup of our state and our our government renders invisible the violence done to communities that are not in power. You take that and I think a lot about, you know, Rebecca Traster is someone who I go to really often in my reading and trying to understand what's going on and kind of like process it. And she had a, a piece recently. I know this will come out much later. Um, so, uh, you know, earlier this summer, she had a piece about white male minority rule, and she called it Summer of Rage. Those are, you know, two things, to both titles about rage and both about people who are not part of that white male minority rule who are upset and angry. And I read the comments on his page. First of all, he went on Fox News to say that he does not support the abolishment of ICE. Now, that is pandering to the right-wing propaganda network and like you knew exactly what you were doing when you did that you knew you were going to upset people by going on fox news you knew that you were going to get attention from folks on the right as well like if you really like don't want to be quote-unquote divisive then don't say anything but he went on there specifically to make waves and get attention and you know the audacity of the congressman to say like, how can you question my support for immigrants when he is like proactively going out there and not only just anywhere going out there, going to Fox News to say that he doesn't support the abolishment of ICE is really outrageous. And, you know, let's let's think about what we're talking about when we talk about the abolishment of ICE here. This is a government agency that is not as old as time. It was only created after 9-11. It is clearly incompetent and it's like well documented all of the ways in which it is like a royally incompetent government agency. And it's also clearly racist. And when you look at undocumented immigration in this country and you look at who ICE targets and deports, it's totally out of whack. There's like way more people who are Latino who are being targeted by ICE proportionally than coming to this country without papers. And so like I see it and a lot of people see it as like a racially motivated government 
entity that is like going after people. And it's like so out of touch with American values, bursting into people's homes, sowing fear in communities, waiting at subway stations. Like this was like not American. And he's going after a specific group of people, specific community of people. And it is a relatively new agency that is wholly and completely incompetent. And so that is what we're talking about when we talk about the embolishment of ICE. If you don't support that, well, first of all, you shouldn't be in office. But if you don't want to provoke ire from either side and you want to focus on what brings us together, then why are you the one talking about we need to keep ICE? If you are the one who wants to focus on the 90 percent of what people agree on, then why aren't you out there talking about how the majority of the electorate thinks we have a right to health care and that you and your colleagues need to do something about it or that the majority of the electorate thinks that folks need to make more money. The wage gap is unfair. Talk about those things. But you're not. You're talking about the politically divisive things and the most politically divisive place you could find it. And then you have the audacity to say that we should all just get along. Well, no. And there's a huge Latino immigrant population in his district. Huge. He represents them. He is like honor bound to represent them. And, you know, even if folks are undocumented and they can't vote and couldn't vote for him, they pay taxes. They pay his salary. So there are people in his district who pay his salary, who he is not only not standing up for, but going on Fox News to, like, essentially attack. So I I find it really disgraceful. To me, that's not the legacy of that seat. You know, Congressman Gary Ackerman was our congressman for a long time. He was a champion for people who were oppressed. He was a champion for public housing, a champion for the Jewish community, for the immigrant community. You know, that to me is the true legacy of that seat. And we've known who Tom Swazi is for a long time, even before he was in this seat. Tom Swazi is Tom Swazi. And I think it's really outrageous that he isn't getting a very robust challenge at the moment, but he should. And I think he will. I mean, I've been having a conversation with myself, with others in my um, UU spiritual community about the difference between being nice and being good. And they're not always the same thing. So, I mean, what Tom Swazi said was very nice, but I don't think it was very good. So I'll just I'll just leave it there. But it's also just not true. Like, I still can't get over that. Like, oh, how about we focus on the 90 percent of things that we agree on? Well, how about you do that and not go on Fox News and say we need to keep eyes like what? Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice to see you guys. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thank you for talking to us. Special note to our listeners, we're going to be trying to go twice a month soon, but we will, we'll see. We're going to keep going. So Rebecca, if people want to find out more about you online, you don't tweet anymore. Do you, uh, do you do any kind of public social media engagement? I would say if you want to kind of like follow our work, uh, you can look at the Wisconsin Working Families Party Facebook page, which we update pretty often. And then we have a Twitter too, um, that's at WIWFP. But that's the best way to kind of keep up with me. My public work is around uh, what we're doing in Wisconsin, really. And I just, you know, complain on group text with people like Elizabeth about what's happening in New York. So, <laughs> so, so if you want to hear what I have to say publicly, it's about Wisconsin. You should go to the WFP. <laughs> okay, sounds good. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-R-E-N. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. 
Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.